0: So first and foremost, what we're doing, and why I'm here, you know, doing this interview, is because we're trying to get the word out. So, for a year, we engaged in a in a public uh, uh, kind of outreach campaign. We got uh, billboards around Riverside County, several billboards along, along our freeways. You're listening to the voice of Mike Hestrin, Riverside County District Attorney, who is describing
1: his office's multi-step campaign to combat the rising fentanyl epidemic within his jurisdiction. Since the beginning of 2022, Hestrin's team has begun an advertisement campaign through traditional and social media centered around the dangers of fentanyl. They are also sending prosecutors and fentanyl awareness advocates to school districts throughout the county to educate students about the truth of the drug epidemic. Their last solution to this project however, differs quite a bit from the other two.
0: The last thing is that we took a very hard line and we have begun to investigate and prosecute uh, cases where a drug dealer um, furnished or sold someone fentanyl and they died. We're prosecuting some of those cases for murder. Mike Kestrin and his office have begun to prosecute
1: suspected fentanyl dealers with murder. To be exact, his office is charging accused dealers with second-degree murder, which is punishable by a term of 15 years to life in California, if their sale can be traced back to an overdose resulting in death. According to Hestron, the Riverside County DA's office has charged 13 suspected drug dealers since they first started the practice in 2021. He also stated that his office works with local police and the sheriff's department to prove the accused drug dealer knew they were selling fentanyl and knew the potential dangers of the drug before indicting murder charges.
0: I'll give you an example, say a drug dealer is you know again a lot of these transactions are online or by text so that's evidence for us we can we can go to the companies and pull those text messages or even you know messaging apps we can get all those things in law enforcement and a lot of times we see the the conversation between the drug dealer and the the client and you know there'll be things in there like hey this is fentanyl it's very deadly this could kill you, you know, make sure you only take a quarter of a pill, things like that. Um, or, you know, the drug dealer has, is aware and discussing, for example, that two, two, two other people died of an overdose from fentanyl, and yet they're still selling. So those situations, we're taking a hard line, we're basically saying, look, you've got to know as well that folks that deal drugs, you're, you're peddling poison. Um, it's different because it's so lethal. and so. When people die, you're going to be responsible for that. Hestern also made it
1: very clear that his office is only interested in prosecuting fentanyl dealers for murder, not every drug dealer in Riverside County. He cites the extreme levels of toxicity the synthetic opioid contains in relation
0: to other drugs. I've had people say to me, well, why just fentanyl? Why not prosecute every drug dealer for murder? And my response is we can't because the way that we prove that murder case against the fentanyl dealer is by the toxicity and the lethality of this new drug. It's it's so lethal that someone takes fentanyl, you know, they might take it for months at a time, but then they get a pill that contains a lethal dose, and it's over. So it, it wasn't that their body built up a tolerance. It's that there's no safe way to use fentanyl. It's 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 too toxic. It's too lethal. Um, and so that's the difference. Prosecutors further north, like in the San
1: Luis Obispo or Contra Costa counties, have brought similar charges to suspected drug dealers, but Hester's office was the first to do so in Southern California. Now, San Bernardino and Orange County seem to be following suit, but health officials within the IE are pushing back on the idea. Instead, some want to promote a multifaceted approach, focusing on destigmatizing addiction and harm reduction services. It's two completely opposite approaches to the problem, which begs the question, what is the best way to mitigate fentanyl deaths within the Inland Empire? From Riverside City College viewpoints, in partnership with California Humanities, to the Democracy and Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program, I'm Tim Nacy, and this is Fentanyl Empire. This is the final episode of our three-part series, Where Does the Empire Go From Here? Days before District Attorney Hestran filed a murder charge against a suspected fentanyl dealer, a California Senate bill centered around prosecuting fentanyl dealers was introduced to the Senate desk. California Senator Melissa Melendez, who represents Inland Empire cities that fall under District 28, authored and introduced Senate Bill 350 in 2021. The bill would have required individuals convicted of distributing fentanyl to receive a warning, alongside other normal drug-related charges. If the same person were to be caught and convicted of the same crime again, then SB 350 would allow the individual to be charged with voluntary manslaughter or murder. The bill was killed just a little less than a year later, but was reintroduced as SB 1350 at the beginning of this year. Here is California State Senator Melendez on why she reintroduced the bill.
2: You know, these drug dealers are just getting off scot-free. I mean, it's, it's as though they're selling some, you know, benign drug out there, and they are just not. And parents are finding their children, you know, dead in their bed in the morning when they get a checkup on them or wake them up for school. Um, so, you know, we didn't have a lot of success with SB 350, unfortunately, got killed in the Public Safety Committee. But um, Matt Capaluto, who is a constituent of mine, his daughter um, died from a fentanyl poisoning. And he was the genesis behind this bill. And I made a promise to him that I would continue with this bill in the hopes of getting it through. So we have reintroduced SB 1350 um, this year.
1: Hestrom believes Melendez's bill is a good start, but the California lawmakers should begin to have a conversation with district attorneys across the state to create a statute similar to the federal government's enhanced
0: penalty when drug trafficking causes serious bodily injury or death. Um, I I do think that we do need help, you know, with the law, you know, for example, if we had a law on the federal side, they have a law that says if you uh, deal drugs, any drug and you kill someone, you can be responsible for their death. It's not murder, though. It's uh, something else. It's like dealing resulting in death. And and so I would like to see something like that in California where it didn't just have to be murder. So if you had a drug dealer who caused a death, we could charge them with this other crime and, and the penalty would be severe, but it not necessarily murder. Because, you know, the mur- murders, I sh- I, you know, should be reserved for the most severe of those cases, but also, um, you know, we could have like a, um, a, cr- a crime of, of causing death by dealing fentanyl that was specific to fentanyl that would help. It would help uh, people to understand what is, ser- what, you know, how serious this is.
1: At the beginning of the year, Hestrin hosted a press conference about fentanyl. On the stage next to Hestrin stood Melendez, Sheriff Chad Bianco, San Bernardino County D.A. Jason Anderson, and Orange County D.A. Todd Spitzer. Alongside these political figures stood the families of victims holding posters of loved ones lost to fentanyl. Matt Capilouto, who has felt the same hardship many other parents in the room felt, spoke in favor of SB 1350 and the dangers of this illicit drug. Melendez urged the community to reach out to politicians and voice their support of SB 1350. In our interview with her, she expressed what it would mean to her if the bill were to be put into statute.
2: Well, you know, it would be great if the state legislature would put this into statute so that every district attorney across the state was on solid grounds and solid footing with this. Um, But we have yet to be able to do that, so I am very proud of the fact that Riverside County is kind of stepping into the void and doing this, and other counties are following suit. I mean, Orange County certainly is doing so, San Bernardino, and we've seen some other counties across the state doing this as well. But, you know, I think these DAs really need that support of the legislature and it being written into law and into statute
1: it will be Melendez's final opportunity to pass this bill as her term will end December 5th. However, there's still a lot of legislation at the state level that looks to mitigate the fentanyl epidemic. There is a bill that would reclassify fentanyl as a schedule one drug and make possession for the purpose of sale punishable by up to six years in prison. It would also make the sale of fentanyl through social media punishable by up to nine years in prison. Another would offer a grant to create pilot programs in the counties of San Bernardino, Riverside and Orange which would offer free naloxone to individuals who attend a training program. It would also give a grant to said county's law enforcement to create an overdose response team. And then there is yet another bill that would require social media platforms to create policies that prohibit dealers from selling controlled substances on their platforms. This is a policy that Steve Filson is particularly passionate about.
3: I get it. Snapchat is such a broad platform. They say that they don't have the resources or they can't control everything. Okay, well... I, I don't believe that, you know, put it this way, Ann Milgram, the DEA administrator, several a couple of months ago during a, um, a, a news conference pointed out that Snapchat and other online platforms were able to control, you know, stop, uh, child sex trafficking, child pornography and everything else. They're able to deal with that. Why can't they deal with people distributing narcotics? Kids can go onto the websites, particularly Snapchat. Like I said, our most experience is with Snapchat, and they're able to find somebody that's distributing it. Okay, they they order it up, a person delivers it to their home. Uh, we've, We've demanded that Snapchat put some, you know, mediation tactics into play there, and if it means hiring more resources that can do that type of thing, that's fine, then do it.
1: To a person unfamiliar with the judicial system, all these bills can begin to sound the same, but for the lawmakers, it is an important step in the right direction to help mitigate the crisis. District attorneys and California lawmakers are trying to find an effective but firm way to cut off the availability of fentanyl, despite criticism of their policy's severe punishment. But even someone like Filson, who explained to us that he was supportive of raising fentanyl's classification, also held some reservations when it came to local district attorneys' move to prosecute dealers.
3: I don't know if it's a resolution, but it, it's, it, it's one component of it. Again, education, awareness, awareness, enforcement, and then treatment. That's what we have to work on. Is everybody going to be prosecuted for murder? Well, heck, no. You can't do that. It that's it, not that's not reasonable. But in those situations where the district attorney has provided information by the police that indicates that a person had intentionally distributed something that they knew could have killed somebody, they have a responsibility to prosecute it. Okay, and and again, it's on a case by case basis. It's it's not that situation. My daughter again, my daughter's case is is there, and it hasn't been prosecuted. You know, so what's going to happen with it? I don't know. But whatever happens is irrelevant. Education and awareness, Jessica's dead, Nicholas was killed with her, and two other people were killed. We want to prevent others from the same fate. That's the bottom line.
1: Moving forward, Filson's goal is to promote awareness and education. His main concern is ensuring that others don't face the same pain he felt when his daughter died from an overdose. Hestrin, on the other hand, is using his power as district attorney to address this crisis, but also emphasized that he just wants to make
0: sure unsuspecting users aren't falling victim to the drug. So, what I would say is, you know, don't don't discount what I'm saying because I'm in law enforcement and you know, you might be thinking, a young person might be thinking, oh, another person in authority telling us not to use drugs. That's not what I'm saying. I, I would urge you not to use drugs, but that's not what I'm, my message is. My message is fentanyl has changed everything and you, you have to do your own research. You have to figure out the threats that you're facing because they're real. Fentanyl is everywhere and there's just no safe way you can avoid it. The only way you can avoid it is you cannot experiment with drugs anymore. I know that's a that's a message maybe that not everyone wants to hear. But all I can do is tell the truth and and hope the best.
1: The Inland Empire's law enforcement officials and policymakers are not the only groups working to mitigate the fentanyl epidemic. Many employees within the county's behavioral and public health departments are working hard to create a solution to the crisis, except their plan is vastly different from the IE's elected officials. They want to promote a multifaceted approach, focusing on destigmatizing addiction and harm reduction services. They also acknowledge it would be near impossible to decrease demand and distribution for widely available drugs. Therefore, the goal is to minimize the rate of overdoses while also building trust within its community. This is clearly a different tactic than what was used during the meth epidemic of the 90s and 2000s, and one that Wendy Hetherington, Chief of Epidemiology and Program Evaluation Branch, wants to implement.
4: So I think, you know, from a public health approach and actually from a society approach, we should, one, destigmatize addiction, because addiction is just a chronic relapsing, you know, disease. Also then, you know, preach um, harm reduction. So this includes things like you know don't use alone, know what you're using, like either with fentanyl test strips. Make sure your friends and family have Narcan. There's a don't use alone or never use alone hotline that people could call if they don't have friends or family around them um, to make sure that they can use you know drugs safely. Um, But I think that's just the biggest take-home message: is we we need to do more harm reduction.
1: It is a sentiment that Dr. Michael Levine, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at University of California, Los Angeles, also promoted.
5: So I will say this is my personal opinion. This does not necessarily represent the, the views of UCLA or the regents of the state of, the state of California, or this is my own personal view, um, that harm reduction strategies are needed. Probably the biggest one is dispensing patients with Narcan. So obviously, we tell people not to use drugs. But I think it would be naive to suddenly assume that just because we say that not to use opiates that you're never going to use. So we certainly encourage patients not to use, we discuss the harms of using, but if they are going to use, they should use with a friend, and they should not use at the same time. So if you and your friend are both going to use opiates, one of you uses first, you have Narcan there. So if you become unconscious, your friend could give you Narcan and then still needs to call 911. But if you're going to use drugs, you should do it not by yourself, because if you become unconscious, there's no one to get you help. And you shouldn't use at the same time, because if you both use it exactly the same time, you both go unconscious at the same time. It doesn't matter that you have Narcan sitting with you. So probably the biggest thing more than anything else is use with a friend and don't use at the same time. Obviously, don't use at all is the biggest way to prevent getting an overdose. But if you are going to use, you should use risk mitigation strategies such as using with a friend, not using at the same time, and then ideally not injecting either, using some alternative route, whether it's um, smoking um, or insufflating where you snort it, or using some non-injectable route, which largely minimizes the risk of getting an infectious disease from, the, from, uh, you, from that you would get otherwise from shooting.
1: Those against the idea of harm reduction campaigns pointed to potential flaws in its strategy. Mike Hestron felt that the model is a policy mistake because the government would, in effect, be financing drug use. He also stated that an argument could be made for harm reduction tactics to mitigate heroin or methamphetamine use, but not fentanyl, due to its lethality. Melendez believes that the model enables addicts to continue using, the programs don't require users to enter treatment programs, and that individuals without sufficient treatment would overdose anyway. However, there seems to be a misconception about what harm reduction is. According to the United States Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, harm reduction is a strategy that is meant to directly engage with people who use drugs. This direct contact can help prevent overdoses, infectious disease transmission, improve the well-being of those served, and to offer healthcare options. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention even reported that syringe service programs are proven to reduce HIV and hepatitis C by about 50%. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention even reported that syringe service programs are proven to reduce HIV and hepatitis C transmission by about 50%. It is a process that Wendy Hetherington explained in depth.
4: Harm reduction is just behaviors that reduce your risk of um, acquiring a disease or reducing your risk of of having some sort of outcome that you're trying to prevent. At needle exchange programs, you're not just handing out needles and um, gathering up the dirty needles. You're not just that. It's an opportunity to provide education, to have information for treatment, to have information for more harm reduction practices. And so, You know you may go to a needle exchange program pretty regularly um and then you know one day you may be ready for treatment and you know at at these programs there's information on how to get treatment so it's there for when you're ready and i think that's what's that's what's most important about harm reduction programs it's not just you know like here's a clean needle or here's a fentanyl test strip it's that there's all this other messaging and interaction that we could we could help people and as well as not only related to drugs but usually at these places or, or when we do it, there's there's more information on how to get other services so like medical care or dental care or behavioral health care or or something so it's not just like giving needles out
1: building trust with users is an important component of harm reduction because it allows the harm reduction specialists to have an open conversation about treatment and that is where will harris and his office come into play Will Harris is the assistant manager for the Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Program within the county's behavioral health department, where they offer a new treatment option, as he explains.
6: Here in uh, Riverside, we've had the advent of a new program that uh, came into being about uh, 2017. It was called the uh, Drug Medical Organized Delivery System, and it revolutionized the way that we were able to offer treatment services for uh, Medi-Cal beneficiaries, and so it opened up the door uh, to treatment. Um, We were, in the past, all we could really offer at the county clinics were were outpatient and intensive outpatient services, but with the DMC-ODS waiver, we now have the opportunity to offer residential treatment and have it covered uh, through Medi-Cal. So that was a huge, huge win. And so fortunately, um, that preceded the major fentanyl crisis. So at least we're armed with the ability to treat many, many more people than we would have been had this happened uh, 10 or 15
1: years ago. On top of their residential treatment, the Behavioral Health Department is also working on preventative strategies. Like Void, Harris's team is also going to different schools and giving presentations on the dangers of fentanyl, while at the same time offering programs for the youth.
6: Our prevention strategy here in Riverside County is one arm of it. There's there's three separate arms. The first arm we offer is what we is the Friday Night Live program. Uh, Friday Night Live is a statewide program. It's a youth development program aimed at providing um, opportunities for uh, community engagement, opportunities for leadership advocacy, uh, providing a safe environment, uh, providing connectedness to community and connectedness to school and we have the largest Friday Night Live uh, program here in the in the state of California. The other way that we approach this is that we ha- offer a program uh, designed for high-risk youth, uh, students that uh, uh, may have gotten suspended from school and have got into a little trouble with the law but they are not at the level yet where they would qualify for a diagnosis of substance use disorder. So we have a special program for those kids, and uh, it's called the Individual Prevention Services Program, or IPS. And uh, that program originally we offered at our 11 county-operated substance abuse sites. It's a one-on-one intervention with the young people
1: For many young adults who didn't have the best childhoods, it was finding something positive to use their talents with that allowed them to overcome their beginnings. Harris is an advocate of this idea as well. And the program is designed
6: uh, not to look for pathology within the young person, but to look for strengths. And the approach to this is a individual one-on-one meeting uh, where we explore the strengths in the young person's life and try to use those to help turn around the behavior uh, so that uh, they can meet some of their goals that they have in their own life. Not so much that we're telling them you don't want to do drugs, but we're, we're talking to them in a way that are like, well, you know, you said you wanted to graduate high school. How do you think the drug use is, uh, you know, give them some motivational interviewing and help them
1: come up with their own solution? Also partnering with Harris and Behavioral Health is Rebecca Antion, who is part of the Opioid Overdose Awareness and Prevention Program. It is a program that specializes in having open conversations about drug use with students and to identify young adults who might be using drugs as a coping mechanism for trauma. Through their intervention, they attempt to steer perspectives about drug use and address the root cause of their growing addictions. They also employ a screener test called CRAFT, a quiz that the Behavioral Health Department recommended. It is similar to the ACE quiz mentioned in our previous episode. If the student falls between a medium or high risk, then they are referred to a school counselor or behavioral health specialist.
7: Um, So that's why the pipeline that we've established like with our behavioral health department or with the counseling department on the school campuses through the screener that we use is really helpful Um, because many of our schools have shared like, you know, these are students that we wouldn't have even known about had they not been able to take the screening tool, right? So we know we've been able to at least capture some students that were not on their radar Um, and so they were able to get connected to support much sooner than they probably would have. Um, We also know that like part of our program is expanding, too, and we're going to start expanding into the schools to offer more education and training about what does resilience mean, what does it look like to start engaging and building your health, uh, your healthy coping strategies, because I think that's so important. If we can start talking to our kids and supporting them moving towards addressing past trauma and pain that they may be feeling encouraging them and empowering them to reach out and offer and connect with support if needed, and then start thinking about what can they do themselves to lean into other strategies that aren't going to harm them, but are going to help them deal with the uh, ongoing pain or distress that they're feeling. I think we're really going to start seeing some decreases.
1: The Opioid Overdose Awareness and Prevention Program is fairly new as they launched their pilot program last year. But in their short amount of time, they have already expanded to nine schools, had 2,108 students enroll in their classes, and have given 595 students a craft screener test. At the end of the day, the IE has come to realize that the fentanyl epidemic has reached its front door. It has reached the point where the community cannot just shine a spotlight on the crisis and warn its residents of fentanyl's impact. From the perspective of both elected officials and the public health department, action needs to be taken quickly, and they are asking the community to rally behind those who are working hard to mitigate fentanyl's effects. The Inland Empire is a region full of proud residents. They are proud of the IE, not because they believe it is perfect, but because it is their home. And now that their home is in danger, it's going to take a united effort of awareness, education, and action to ensure that those who are at the greatest risk don't suffer the same fate as many before them have. Or, as Michael Moya put it, be compassionate, be understanding, and be loving. Again, Moya. What advice do
5: you want to give to um, other individuals who are probably listening to this and they might have relapsed or they might have gone a similar route? You just want, you know, what advice do you want to give to them?
8: Don't give up. That's it. Just don't give up, man. It, it's I've been Like I said, I've been in treatment 10 times. If you're not counting detoxes and everything else, probably more. And uh, I think the constant theme of that is just not giving up on myself, you know? Um, like there's been moments where I'm like homeless in my car, smoking dope, fentanyl or heroin, whatever it is. And I'm like crying, looking in the mirror, literally crying. Like, I don't want to do this anymore, but why the fuck am I doing it? You know what I mean? And I think a lot of times, as an addict, we get really hard on ourselves, you know? Uh, that negative self-talk is really prevalent, especially in addicts. It's insane. But, um, yeah, just don't give up, man. Don't listen to that voice in your head that tells you you're a piece of shit. You're this. You're that. You can't do this. Because um, if you're listening, who's talking? Because you can't do both at the same time, you know? That's not you. That's that, that that negative self-talk that parasite you know that that's only there to bring you down
5: what do you want people you know who aren't addicts or who haven't experienced you know not even a cousin or family member that's gone through this what do you want them to hopefully understand about what life is like you know going through this journey
8: um well i think the fucked up part about that is that i don't think they can understand um i don't think they can but um all I can say is that um, you know, be a human being, be compassionate. You know, be loving, be understanding. Everybody has their demons. Everybody has trauma, and um, some of us have just learned better ways to deal with that trauma than others. Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't wake up, or I didn't. I wasn't born and decided I wanted to be an addict. You know. It's uh, it's nature and nurture. You know, it's, it's your environment and it's also you know some DNA factors involved too. So, it's like winning the shitty lottery. You know what I mean? So, I guess just be compassionate. You know, try to be as understanding and educate yourself about it if you can.
1: I am Tim Nacey, and this has been Fentanyl Empire, the Inland Empire's latest drug crisis. Thanks for listening. You be my- Fentanyl Empires, produced by Daniel Hernandez, Will L.G. Stevens, Jennifer Vasquez, and Tim Nacy. This episode was written by Daniel Hernandez and Will L.G. Stevens. It was narrated by Tim Nacy and edited by Daniel Hernandez and Tim Nacy. If you or anyone you know is suffering from any kind of substance use disorder or mental health crisis, you can find some resources in the description and on our website, viewpointsonline.org.